Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. He brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Our responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 118. It's a classic Palm Sunday psalm. It's actually a classic Easter psalm with two halves within it. I'll begin, and you can respond. Let those who fear the Lord say, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. This is the gate of the Lord that came. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As the choir uh, changes position. Just a couple of um, items for us as we prepare for Holy Week. A number of resources are available. Uh, this little uh, family story, Easter story booklet is available. I've got about 50 copies and there's enough for one for each household. If you're grandparents and you have 
uh, children that um, you think their households would benefit from this, you can get a copy for them as well. Um, it's a compilation of several Easter stories, fine art inside there, and just nice to walk through um, with the little kids. Also, if you're more um, devotional scripture oriented, I've got readings uh, for each day of the week from Palm Sunday now through uh, tomorrow, Fig Monday, Temple Tuesday, Spy Wednesday, Monday Thursday, Good Friday, Black Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. So you can read the scriptures. They're available uh, at the literature table and a few on the information center as well. Also, uh, if you're color-oriented and you want to do your own coloring, a few little Holy Week coloring booklets are available as well. Um, A couple updates. We've got um, just a thank you uh, from Russ and June. and uh, They're just so thankful for the church family that's uh, been praying for them, concerned for them. And they're grateful for that prayer support. Also, an uh, update from uh, Shuji Kondo, our missionary in Japan. Uh, he's actually stateside right now and has been uh, for a couple weeks leading Bible studies across, uh, across the southern, southeastern part of the country. Very full schedule. Continue to pray for him. He looks to go back to Japan on the 23rd. So we can be thinking of these things among others. Mind if I pray? There was no answer, but I think it's okay. (laughs) Rhetorical question, right? All right. Father, indeed, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your mercy, your grace. Uh, We're glad for the hosannas. That term itself, it means save us, we pray. There's a sense of urgency in it. Well, now, Lord, even as we come to your word, we we recognize we can't come to it, but that uh, you enable us by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, for, again, that illuminating work. Guide us through this passage as we consider Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I do invite you to open your copy of the New Testament to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to take a a little pause from our study in Hebrews. Although it could have been, I suppose, a way to to get that in uh, Palm Sunday and and Easter orientation. uh, Because it's all about the the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to get more specific historically. We reflect upon this Palm Sunday. The King has come. Indeed, He has come. Remember that old tune, The King is coming. The King is coming. Praise God. He's coming again. So we we know that He has come. He's coming a second time. We want to reflect upon the purpose and meaning of His first coming as He came to, to die. And that's a mix of emotion and feeling as we come this Palm Sunday. Sometimes we will call this Palm Passion Sunday, because it begins introducing, indeed, the, the suffering of our Lord, his passion. We tend to use the word passion as only one of great uh, uh, oh, visionary emotion, shall we say. But the root word is pasco, pasca, suffering. And this is the passion of our Lord Jesus this week. Indeed, as even we alluded to, Monday is called Fig Monday. At Monday, he'll curse the fig tree as a symbol of spiritual life or lack thereof, lack of vitality uh, for the nation of Israel. So we come to this and we've read the passage already. What's setting us here is he's leaving Jericho and uh, moving his way toward Jerusalem. 
from chapter 16 or so, Matthew's been anticipating this movement and arrival in Jerusalem. He told his disciples, even back in chapter 16, that he has to go to Jerusalem. He'll suffer, be crucified, and die. Uh, not that they really fully comprehended or grasped what that would entail and what that meant. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem, about 17 miles. It raises about 3,000 feet in elevation from there on up to Jerusalem. Twists and turns, nooks and crannies in that road as it meanders its way uh, to Jerusalem. It climbs, like I said, those 3,000 feet elevation till it reaches uh, Mount of Olives. And Mount of Olives sits 300 feet above Mount Zion. So you get to the top, the crest of this hill, and, and you overlook the spanning of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, and, and all that is before it, even seeing the, the dome of the temple that would be there. Actually, the temple wouldn't have a dome. There's a dome there now, but that's something totally different. Might get replaced someday. We'll let the Lord do that. Two little villages as you crest the hill there, Bethphage, uh, the house of figs, and Bethany, the house of affliction. Uh, It's in Bethany that Jesus would return uh, the end of this day, uh, having scoped out the things in the temple, and he returns to Bethany, probably uh, to the house of his three good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he's been there a couple times before. It's one of, it seems to be one of his favorite places to be. Indeed, it's there uh, in chapter 11 of John's Gospel that Lazarus was raised from the dead there in Bethany. It's uh, John chapter 12 uh, where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. Uh, it will be the house of Simon the leper uh, later this week where Jesus will dine as part of his paschal suffering. Uh, it's, it's a place where he will, he will ascend back into heaven at the Mount of Olives. He'll be with his disciples one last time, and he'll ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, right there from the same place, Mount of Olives. And it's to the Mount of Olives that Christ will return. Zechariah, the prophecy that is quoted in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21 in its context, has this setting in which Jesus, the Messiah, will return to the Mount of Olives and touch foot there and begin to establish his reign and his rule on earth. Indeed, as the video said, he came this first time not to take over any earthly kingdom, but the second time he returns, no doubt, he will establish his reign and rule of righteousness. So all this is greatly significant to the the place and the setting in which we find Jesus. And one has said, Jesus now passes in triumph by the location that in just four days will witness his most wrenching anguish. It's there at the Mount of Olives in Bethany that, that he will sweat those drops of blood, praying earnestly in preparation for his death, the ultimate sacrifice for human sin yet yielding to the will of his Father. Leaving Jericho, the two blind men cry out, Lord, have mercy on us! Lord, have mercy! Beautiful story in and of itself there in the end of chapter 20. Well, who is this Jesus? Who is this that the blind men even can see through their blindness that this is the Son of David? The one who can bestow mercy upon him. Well, in this 
opening part of the chapter, there's several uh, royal attributes, we might say. Different, perhaps, than some of the royal attributes we might think of in our earthly kingdoms. Some be similar. Some are controversial. But the first one, divine authority. Verses 1 to 3. They drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. Jesus commanded the two disciples to go down into the village and snatch a donkey from the post. It's apparent in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11, that this was unprepared. Jesus did not have plans ahead of time. Jesus says, go. Take the donkey. If anyone stops you, what are they to say? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Now, as they go, Mark tells us they find it exactly as Jesus said. And, and sure enough, a couple of guys are there and say, what are you, where are you going with these? And they dutifully respond the way Jesus told them. The Lord needs them. Oh, okay. Now, it could be these guys know exactly who they're talking about. I mean, there's a lot of, of apparently, crowd gathering, talking about this. But Jesus does send them ahead. But is this title, Lord? Not even, not even the personal name, Jesus, but Lord, the Lord, the Lord needs him. And when the Lord bids, then people respond. Jesus has this divine authority. There's other instances in the life of Jesus, oh, where he knows. He just, he just knows. Oh, he's talking to one of those disciples. Which was it? Is it Nathaniel? I think. Nathaniel, who's sitting under the tree and, and is thinking about Jacob's story and the ladder to heaven and his brother comes over and says hey we found the messiah and he's doubtful that jesus could in fact be the messiah but jesus then tells i think it's nathaniel you have to is it yeah thank you um he tells nathaniel exactly what he was thinking and what bible story he was reading to his kids i don't know if his kids were there and, he, and at that, Nathaniel submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is a divine authority that's here. And indeed, oh, we could go to Psalm 50, couldn't we? I know we use this one for our own, our own benefit, but it's really about the true Adam, about the Messiah. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It all belongs to Jesus. He made all things, seen and unseen. He's the Creator, the Maker. It all belongs to Him. He is the Lord of all. Indeed, this anticipates the closure of Matthew's Gospel, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus with His disciples says, all authority has been given to Me 
All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. This divine authority is displayed here. This donkey is his. You were made by him. You were created by him and for him. Will you hear the voice of the Lord, your master, and follow him? Well, the story goes on, verses 4 and 5. Contrasting uh, attribute here. From divine authority, we move to lowly humility. This took place to fulfill what was spoken about in the Scriptures by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. They're putting it nicely in our English uh, translations with Jesus, but Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the scriptures. Time and again in his ministry says, it is written. Referring to the word of God, which is the plan and purpose for his life, the plan and purpose for ours, the plan of redemption. We can, we can live in boldness and we can live in confidence that God will keep his word. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus, the person and work, his life. He is the fulfillment of the Scripture. Now, in this particular setting, we also get a sense of his kind of majestic rule, his kind of authority. Now, he comes on a donkey, and that would be, even in those days, a quite a status symbol have as a donkey. In the, in the Old Testament, even the sons of David would go about riding the kingdom in donkeys. Donkeys were not necessarily lowly in and of themselves. But when you recognize the setting in contrast with a Roman empire, a Roman empire where indeed the horse, the stallion, was the symbol of power and authority, majesty, divine attributes imputed to the emperor, In this setting, it it, uh, is apparent that the prophet anticipated this humility. Your king comes to you humble, mounted on a donkey. It It is a way, a manner, a rule of peace. Now, we, we too will expect Jesus to come one day on that white stallion. Revelation chapter 19 helps us understand this. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Yes, Jesus will indeed come the second time that way when he hits Mount of Olives again. But this first time, and until then, it is the way of the donkey. It's the way of the cross. Today, Jesus reveals himself as a king of peace, a prince of peace. The Bible says he comes in humility. Indeed, Matthew 11, Jesus' words, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My way is gentle, easy, for I am gentle, I am lowly in spirit. He's meek. He comes with this lowly humility. 
When we receive accolades, are we able to retain this kind of divine humility? This is what it is to be God. Both the authority and the humility. It is His character and His nature. Well, verses 6 and 7 go on with another attribute. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and He sat on them. And most of the crowd then spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, the disciples do exactly what Jesus said. That's a mark of a true disciple. They obey. They hear the word of the Lord and they do it. These disciples go and uh, yes, He's clothed in lowly humility. The Lord Jesus Himself is obedient. Philippians chapter 2. He didn't grasp His divine nature. He didn't assume, presume upon His divine nature, but took on the form of a servant. Became obedient. Obedient unto death. Even death on the cross. Indeed, this this ruler, this king, is an obedient king. Authoritative. Humble. Obedient to the word of His Father. It is indeed the mark of discipleship to obey. His disciples do. The disciples take their cloaks and turn it into a sort of saddle. And uh, the rest of the crowds, they take their cloaks and put them down on the pavement stones and take the palm branches and sway them. Now, we can go back to the kings of uh, the Old Testament, First Kings as a book, uh, Samuel, first and second Samuel, we would find this is part of the coronation ceremony. This is enthronement activity. The people are wanting to coronate Jesus as king, to enthrone him as their own. But a bit of history has happened. And the palm branch now was also a symbol of patriotism. Palm branch would be on the Jewish money, the Jewish coins of that day. And it was a memorial, in a sense, back to uh, the intertestamental period. And uh, the, the brothers, the Maccabees, thank you, David. The Maccabean Revolution occurred. And they rebelled against uh, the empire. They were squashed. Uh, but it was that patriotism, that nationalism, that now as the people are waving their palm branches is filling in their emotion and their thought and what they're really anticipating Jesus to do. They're anticipating Him to lead another kind of Maccabean revolution. That is not what He's about. The palm branches sway. But Jesus has come as a King of Peace. Indeed, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9. The Prince of Peace. And since we have peace through Jesus, we have peace with God. Romans 5, verse 2 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
as we sway our palm branches, it's fun. For us, it's not a symbol of nationalism or patriotism. We have other colors and caps and flags to do that. But don't let, don't let your nationalism, your patriotism, deter you, sway you, to distort your vision of Christ as your King. The, the real sovereign of your life, of your being. And He grants you peace. This world needs peace. There's great unrest in Eastern Europe. But even our our well-intended and well-meaning Western leaders don't know how to bring in a rule of peace. They simply don't know how. We can get flustered. We can even get frustrated and angry. But we should expect nothing less or nothing more. It is Jesus who is the King and Prince of Peace. It is He alone who will bring it in. Until then, we too go the way of the cross. Some of our brothers and sisters will be martyred. Some have been. A good man, dean of the Evangel Seminary in the Ukraine, was found among the massacred. Yes. We can say, where is Jesus? Where is this King? He's reigning. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when He returns, He will indeed mete out His justice and He will bring the reign of peace. Until then, it is our responsibility not to stand up for our country. It is our responsibility to communicate the reign of Christ and the peace that He offers by justification and peace with God. Well, Matthew goes on, verses 9 to 11. More description of who this kind of king is. The crowds went before him and that followed him where they were shouting, Hosanna, Hashanah, to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, shaken, quaked, saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Notice the change a little bit of identification. The disciples tell, this is the Lord. And the people's identifier is, this is Jesus from Nazareth. The North Country, the place where most people would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? That would be Nathaniel. Jonah came kind of from the same region. He's just another prophet. No, this is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he made very clear to us that this, yes, indeed is the son of David, the son of Abraham. By chapter 4, he says, this is the son of God. 
the divine nature, the human nature, together, mystic, sweet, communion. The crowds get one side of it. They see the human side, and they want the human king. But there is a blessed ancestry. This indeed is the son of David. He has the right to reign from Jerusalem. He is in the line, the heritage of that royal descendant. It says the whole city in this, this stir, this commotion is, oh, what's it say? They're stirred. Well, we get the word seismology from this. It's seismic. The earth will quake when Jesus dies. The earth will quake when He raises from the dead. When Herod learned that Jesus was born King of the Jews, he didn't quite quake, but it says he was troubled and all Israel with him. A phony king. A true king. The true king has come. Who is this? The whole city asks. Who is this? Later, verse 16, the Bible teachers, do you hear what they're saying? Who is this? They'll later say, by what authority do you do these things? They missed that divine authority. Verses 1 to 3, didn't they? There's doubt over the person and the work of Jesus. He, he looks maybe a little bit too human. He, he looks weak. He looks humble, gentle. There's doubt. That there's an unwillingness to see the truth of His power because He doesn't look like we think a king ought to look. This has been the problem of the people of God ever from the beginning, isn't it? Israel wanted a king. The Lord said, okay, you'll get one. The lot fell to Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. Oh, he looks kingly. But he's not. He commits idolatry. He ignores the word of God. He disobeys. So the kingdom is rent from him. God knew it would be all along because the one he had chosen doesn't look very kingly. Handsome, but ruddy in appearance and young. Not even large enough in stature to, to bear the king's armor. It's too big. Not used to it. But he is the man after God's own heart. He is the one of God's own choosing. Now, the people of God have always been deceived by attributes of the world and defining leadership by the wrong measures. Well, Jesus enters verses 12 and 13. This is the same day. He enters the temple and he, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He pulls from the two like powerhouse prophets 
of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he has this holy ferocity about him. How does all of this come together in perfect unity? A divine authority, a lowly humility, a a peaceful royalty, a blessed ancestry, but this holy ferocity to upturn all this. Well, what's getting in going? People would travel these many miles for Passover. It's estimated maybe a couple million coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not that big. Some coming from great distance and it's difficult to bring all the sacrificial things that you'll need. So you could purchase them on site and people were setting up shop and making it convenient for you and filling their pockets at the same time. I mean, imagine the crowds, bad enough. But now the court where the people are supposed to be there to worship is filled with booths. There's no room to worship. All the stuff is there so you can buy to worship, but there's no place to do it. The court of the Gentiles is filled. Where will they go? Jesus sees, yes, the financial gain and is disgusted like the prophet Amos. He, He sees the extortion and is upset. But he, he sees that there's no room. The, the space has been taken up with other things than the things of God. The people have been put out. It says that he drove them out. He drove out the money changers. He drove out these sellers. The word is exorcism. Just as he would cast the demons out, so he cast these out of the temple courts. A house of prayer, a house of worship. Well, nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus as rough as he is here. But do you know that we, the people of God, are indeed the temple of God? That old temple where Jesus went and turned tables, it's gone now. Oh, the foundations are there. Some remnants are there. But as we alluded to earlier, there's another dome of the rock sitting on top. The temple's gone. And in great measure because Jesus ended the old covenant and brought in the new covenant in His body and in His blood. And those of us that are in Him are members of that new covenant, of that new kingdom. And we are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's the apostle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are are that temple. Christ is just as zealous over His church as that ferocity we see demonstrated in the temple of old. And yes, that King 
of authority and humility enters into your life sanctuary and is there to remove and purge all the things that take up space and room and distract you from worshiping God. How do you respond? How do you respond? He is here to make you holy. To cleanse the sanctuary of your life. Well, again, a contrast. Verses 14 to 16. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. They couldn't get there before. There was no room. Now the blind and the lame enter the temple. And he healed them. A compassionate affinity. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant and said, Do you hear the things that they're saying? Jesus said, Have you ever read your Bibles? Have you never read Psalm 8? They probably had all the Psalms memorized, actually. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have ordained praise. Did I have the right song? The Lord is compassionate. Yes, He has that holy ferocity, but know, know, friend, that as He enters the sanctuary of your life and He begins to purge and purify and to remove the extra baggage is because He loves you. Yes, He loves the holiness of His Father, but He loves you and He wants what's better for you than all that junk. And He comes to heal your soul. In contrast to all the wrong activities, Jesus makes a new people from the outcasts. Someone who's greater than the temple is here. He himself cannot be contaminated. He touches the sick and doesn't get sick. He makes the lame to walk but doesn't become lame himself. He bears all of it. He carries all of it. But it doesn't contaminate him. He speaks to the leper, touches the leper. Yet doesn't contract it himself. And so it is with your sin. He comes and he takes your sin. He bears it. But he's not contaminated by it. Indeed, he takes it away and removes it. Yes, the children may lack the inhibitions, but they also lack the skepticism that comes when we get older. 
they're, they're much more happy to walk down the aisle waving a palm branch uninhibitedly than we who simply stand here. I didn't even get it in my hand this time. But. No, those who are like children arrive at the truth more quickly than those who think themselves wise and knowledgeable. One of the greatest challenges in discipleship is to think we know. But the Lord delights in the simplicity of worship. We can overcomplicate things. But He delights in the simplicity of a childlike faith. Just two chapters before. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. The children were brought to Him. They would lay His hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. The disciples were no better than the Pharisees and Sadducees. But Jesus said, let the little children come to Me. Don't hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And He laid His hands on them. Well, there's one more attribute. Verse 17. And leaving them, He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The other uh, Gospels tell us that He entered the city. He went into the temple. He looked about all that's going on. He surveyed all that's happening and got perspective and turned away and left. Probably back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their home. He's fulfilled his role. He sees what's really going on. Not just the externals of the festivities, not just the preparations of Passover. He sees the real condition of the heart. He sees the reasons why people vote yes or people vote no. He sees the motives behind it. That's where his concern is. And now he leaves to ponder all that he has seen and all that he has heard, knowing that he will bear these things all the way to the cross. This is our king. He's cleansed the sanctuary. He makes room for the outcast. He heals the lame. He receives the simple outbursts and praise from children. They are precious in His sight. Who is this man? What do we do with this man? I ask you, hail Him as King. King of your heart. So, Lord, we ask that You indeed, as You did for those two blind men, You would have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. May we be able to cry as the crowds of that day, Hosanna, Lord, would You save us now. May we put our trust in You today. Today, the day of salvation. In the deep thoughts of our heart and mind, would we yield to Jesus as King. Almighty God, good and gracious, gentle and holy, 
Would you send your Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us as this this King of glory? May we yield to Him as our King with divine authority over every facet of our lives. May we come to Him in a lowly humility, hating our sin, our rebellion. May we come to Him and be cleansed by Him, a cleansing through His blood that makes peace. May we come to Him and may we receive every spiritual blessing from Him who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us now, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.